host Joel, and today we're focusing on Joshua chapter 24, along with Judges 1 through 5. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. All the links are in the show notes. And if questions come up during the course of your reading, please feel free to ask them at bit.ly slash ask hyphen OT. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash capital A lowercase S-K dash capital O capital T. A quick shout out to Rita L. who mentioned the power of music to remind her of the surety of God's promises in last week's reading. Uh, She wrote into the show saying, as a choir member, two songs spoke to me in this reading, uh, talking specifically about Joshua 20 and and the surrounding chapters. Uh, First is, Arise, My Soul, Arise. It speaks to the surety of God. And the second one is, Fly to Jesus. In all situations, but in death you fly to Jesus and live. This is what the protection of the Levite cities of refuge were. Rita, I think you're exactly right, and that's one of the reasons it's so important to sing while we worship. Singing is not a sacrament in the same way that communion or baptism are, and yet it's an integral part of our worship, in part because the one who sings, as St. Augustine says, the one who sings prays twice. And it's in music that we are reminded of some of the power of God and the beauty of God's presence. As we get into our reading today, we see one of the recurrent themes throughout the Bible is God using broken things and broken people in the world to triumph over unbroken things and unbroken people. We see the people of Israel again and again standing in rebellion against God, breaking covenant both with God and with one another. Just like we uh, we do today, the people of Israel were not always good at holding to their word. And yet, God continues to build a relationship with them. God continues to use them to bless the nations around them. It's when they don't recognize their own brokenness that they find their way into trouble. When they think they can make it on their own, under their own power, that's when they stumble. And I think that's true for us as well. When we believe that all that we're doing is under our own power or because of the ways that we've pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps, then we find ourselves getting into trouble. But when we know that everything depends on God and God's mercy, then we're doing a little better. See, as we think through the reading from this last week, remember that when you're feeling overwhelmed, when you're feeling ill-equipped, or even particularly broken, that's a far better place to be than when you can convince yourself that you've already arrived, that you're none of these. As they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, the first step to recovery is admitting I have a problem. And once once we embrace that reality, God is able to work with us. And we're going to see that regularly throughout all of Scripture, uh, particularly through judges, that God uses the broken or those who society believes are broken. Let's get into the text. So we open in Joshua 24, the last chapter in the book of Joshua, and In this chapter, we see the importance of tracing history, of remembering where you've come from. This is not the same thing as glorifying some of the the errors that have been made throughout history, but it is the same thing as making sure that you are transparent about what has happened in your past. Joshua uh, retells the story of Israel going 
all the way back to Abraham. And, and, and he, he reminds them that Abraham, before being called by God, was an idolater. And, and Joshua, in retelling the story, throws down the gauntlet. God delivered us from the Egyptians. God brought Abraham out of idolatry into a land of promise. God gave us this promised land. So, will you serve this God? Or will you serve the idols of Egypt or the idols of the Amorites, these people who our God has already shown himself to be stronger than? This is ultimately, by the way, the charge and the challenge of the book of Joshua. Uh, We see it here uh, spelled out clearly. Choose this day who you will serve. And serving God isn't easy. So if you say you want to serve God, remember the God Yahweh will not simply gloss over infidelity if you begin turning toward other gods. So Joshua says all this, and and then in the scene reminiscent of the Israelites on Sinai, covenanting to follow all the laws of Moses right immediately before worshiping a golden calf, we see an earnestness to the Israelites here, insisting, no, we want to follow the Lord. This earnest devotion is going to be put to the test in the book of Judges. This is the same earnest devotion we see in many converts to the faith. Like, yes, God has changed my life. God has saved me from the pit. And this earnestness is good. But this earnestness, if it's not supported, if it's not given structure, and if there's not a community that comes around it, this earnestness can very quickly give way to like a a, a loss of innocence, a, a disillusionment. Once we find out that following God is difficult, then everything that sparked us to follow God sometimes can fall away if it's not for a community of faith that embraces us. And it's this community of faith that Judges is really going to, to, to push on and to see how strong the Israelites' community of faith is. So Joshua ends. Uh, it ends recording the death of Moses' protege, of Israel's conquering general, Joshua. He modeled what it looked like to dedicate the community fully and completely to the Lord. But now that the Israelites are spread out in the land of Canaan, how will they respond to trials and temptations? This is what we'll find out as we read through the book of Judges. So a couple words on the book of Judges, uh, and then we'll, we'll get going into the text. So as I mentioned last week, Judges is possibly the most violent, graphic book of the Bible. Uh, one of the things my tradition does in, in the Presbyterian church is we'll often, many churches will follow a lectionary. A lectionary is a three-year cycle that gets at almost the entire Bible in the course of three years. It gives an Old Testament reading, a, a gospel reading, a Psalms reading, and then an epistles reading from some of the letters in the New Testament. And through this lectionary, uh, through the three-year cycle, we hit almost every passage in Scripture. But there are some that are left out, in part because they're difficult to preach on. The entire book of Judges, if I'm remembering correctly, is not touched on in the lectionary. And it's in part because this is an incredibly violent book. There's a ton of content that folks might find objectionable. However, the book of Judges tells a really important story. We see through Judges the cycle of destruction that human beings tend to reproduce over and over again throughout history. 
As the book goes on, we see chaos and sin beginning to reign more and more, even among those who God has set aside to judge Israel. God will regularly raise up a new judge who will deliver Israel, and then Israel will go back to sin and rinse, wash, repeat. Uh, I've included a link uh, in the show notes to a a site called Overview Bible, which describes this in, in detail. It's very good. I've also included uh, links to some timelines for judges because figuring out the timeline here is super difficult. Scholars believe that many of the judges or, or tribal chieftains that are described in the book of Judges only led a portion of Israel in certain regional conflicts and that there's some overlap between some of the judges. One of the reasons they believe this is that if there were no overlap, the time of Judges would span something like 450 years. But in 1 Kings 6, uh, we see that only 480 years pass between the exodus and the building of the temple. This number, while it could be figurative, you know, because 40 is the number of completion, there are 12 tribes in Israel, 480 is 40 times 12. Um, So it could be communicating that the nation of Israel initiated through the Exodus was finally made complete when the temple was constructed. That's possible. However, if it's not figurative, then there's some fancy math and contracting of the timeline that would need to take place in order to make space in those 480 years for Moses's 40 years of leadership, Samuel's time of leadership, which is about 20 years, and then Saul's reign as king and David's reign as king, both about 40 years. In the show notes, I've included some of these web pages that that go into way more detail than I imagined was possible on constructing the timeline of judges. You can look at them if you like. Um, one interesting point to remember as we read through the book is that the last four or five chapters, chapters 17 through 21, might actually be chronologically one of the earliest stories in Judges. Some would argue this is actually a more colorful retelling of stories that are found in Joshua in in chapter 19 when Dan relocates up to the north, and then chapter 22 of Joshua when the elders of Israel gather to prepare for a possible civil war with the Transjordan tribes. We'll tackle these when we get there, but keep that in mind as we read through the book of Judges. Throughout the book, as we see chaos and sin gain a stronger and stronger hold on Israel, we might also note the refrain that begins to occur later in the book of Judges, where the author writes, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. In this capacity, Judges acts as an argument for why a king over Israel is not only a good idea, but a necessary idea. And while the ideal would be for God to rule as king over Israel, human beings often need somebody they can look to, somebody tangible they can touch. And so this direction toward kingship seems to be the view of the authors of Judges. So with all this in mind, let's jump into the text. In Judges chapter 1, we receive a retelling of the conquest narrative in Joshua. There's definitely some overlap between the end of Joshua and the beginning of Judges. But while in Joshua we had sort of an ambivalent conquest story, with Joshua seeming to imply on the one hand there was this total destruction of all the tribes in Canaan, yet on the other hand, Canaanites were still living in the land, and, and, and Joshua kind of holds these in tension. 
Judges abandons this tension, naming quite explicitly the presence of the Canaanites, particularly among the northern tribes. Some would suggest that this is because Judges was, was written after the, the split in the united monarchy between north and south, where the northern tribes went into idolatry, whereas the southern tribes were, were mostly okay, um, or they were more okay anyway than the northern tribes. Again, we'll get into that when we get into the book of Kings, but there's some thought that Judges may have been written during this time of division. So Judah and Simeon, at the beginning of the book of Judges, seem to go down to do battle successfully together. Uh, we've got the story of Caleb, his daughter Oxa, and his brother Othniel repeated here. Uh, additionally, the, the opening story of Judges involves taking a king captive and cutting off his thumbs and big toes. And this gruesome act sets the scene for the moral ambiguity of Judges, along with the depth of violence to be expected. If even the quote-unquote good guys are going to be uh, doing this to their prisoners, well, what will the bad guys be doing? And yet, despite the successes of the southern tribes, we've got some issues in the north with a ton of land yet to be taken. This prompts much of the conflict we'll see in the book. With so many Canaanites still in the land, Israel will fall into idolatry and the rule of other peoples. And this is the question we need to ask ourselves over and over again as people that are broken, as people that are still governed in, in, and having a sinful nature and in a culture that's governed by sin. We are called to be the light of the world, to shine in the darkness. But if we surround ourselves by darkness, if we surround ourselves by people who are not supporting us in our mission, sometimes we ourselves can fall into the same sort of patterns of behavior that the people around us have fallen into. As Christians, we need to strike a balance. On the one hand, we need to be part of a community of faith that is supporting the work that we do. And on the other hand, we can't just be part of the community of faith. We need to go out into the world. Just as in Judges, you have the people of Israel that are surrounding one another and helping one another, at least when Israel's at its best. But you also have the Canaanites, who, when Israel is at its best, Israel will overcome their gods and will show them the way of, 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 of the good life. Now, Israel here also has some issues with, with genocide. In our time, what we're called to do isn't genocide. What we're called to do is to share the love of Jesus Christ with those who are around us. But that requires balancing a community of faith and a community that is not of faith. Judges. In chapter 2, we see really a thematic chapter of Judges. It offers a sweeping theological explanation for many of the issues in Joshua and the issues yet to come in Judges. According to this chapter, the conquest in Joshua was intentionally incomplete in order to measure the Israelites' loyalty to God. Uh, as we covered a little bit before, it's way easier to worship the one everyone around you is worshiping instead of the one that deserves your worship. This is why it's so important to make sure that you're surrounded by a community of like-minded folks and that you're also ministering to com a community that is different than you are. The Israelites who remembered the mighty acts of God in bringing them up out of the land of Egypt, those Israelites might remain faithful. 
while those who did not remember those mighty acts of God would likely fall into the culture around them, into idolatry. This is why history is so important to remember. The past never dies. In fact, the past is rarely even past. And so remembering our past gives us a window into where God is leading us in the future. So God's answer to the rebellion, those who fail to remember God's deliverance, is charismatic leadership. These are the judges in the book of Judges uh, who would command small guerrilla armies through their charisma and through their military leadership. These judges are the ones God sends in order to liberate Israel again and again from idolatry and foreign rule. And we'll see in Judges chapter 3 that there are a couple different kinds of judges. Uh, we, we see some judges who have nearly no narrative, like Othniel and Shamgar. They each have a couple of verses. Othniel is maybe an exception because we've got a little extra narrative at the beginning of Judges with him. But then Judges like Ehud have stories that are involved with them. A couple of judges you may be familiar with are Gideon and Samson. These judges have a narrative, Deborah, whereas uh, Shamgar and Othniel, almost nothing. So getting into Ehud, uh, because he's the one that we kind of get the most window into in Judges 3, uh, we don't know a whole lot about his character or his personality. All we know is that he was left-handed and that he was trusted enough by the king that the king allowed him a private audience. The left-handedness is unusual. In fact, the Hebrew here, the figure of speech that Hebrew uses in order to indicate somebody's left-handed, is uh, has to do almost with a disability on the right hand, that he wasn't able to use his right hand. Um, whatever the case, you know, Ehud may have been isolated or ostracized on account of his left-handedness, um, and maybe because of a disability in his right hand. Um, but it was this non-normative way of being, this brokenness or social brokenness to some degree, that allowed Ehud to smuggle a short sword into the chambers of King Eglon, since the guards would only check the left thigh. That's where a right-handed person would stow their sword, uh, whereas a, a left-handed person would stow it on the right thigh. Now, the rest of this story is intentionally structured to poke fun at this non-Israelite king uh, with his fatness, his soiling himself in death, the guards thinking he was on the toilet, and so on and so forth. But Ehud's story suggests that God uses us not just in spite of our perceived shortcomings or society's perceived shortcomings in our lives, but sometimes through those perceived shortcomings. Ehud would not have been as successful if he were right-handed. As we get into Judges 4 and 5, this is uh, sort of a, a two-parter where we're looking at the same story from different lenses. We have a prose discourse version of the story, and then we have a poetic sung version of the story in Judges 5. And this is the story of the prophetess and judge Deborah. Much like Ehud was likely marginalized on account of his right hand, Deborah had likely been marginalized because of her gender at this time. And yet, God uses Deborah much like Ehud. Indeed, Deborah is not only a judge, but also the only judge that is reckoned also as a prophet. There is something uh, uh, really good about Deborah's leadership for her to be reckoned both as, as judge and as prophet. As an aside here, any question 
of women in church leadership needs to reckon with this story. From early on, the Lord has given skills both to women and men as leaders of God's people. I I wonder whether those who would bar women from church leadership today would have followed Deborah back in this time. It's a question to ponder. In any event, much like Ehud's story pokes fun at Eglon, this story has ironic twists as well. Instead of Barak being the victorious general, it's Deborah and and Yael who are highlighted. Deborah is the one who initiates the campaign and Yael secures the victory by killing the general, Sisera, savagely. She invites him into her tent. When he asks for water, she gives him milk, puts him to sleep like a mother would put a child to sleep, and then does him in with a tent peg through his head. This is a level of violence that we see in few other places in Scripture. And in Judges 5, we we see this song that commences upon the return from battle. It's an ancient text. Along with the Song of the Sea and some of uh, Balaam's prophetic discourse in Numbers, this is one of the oldest texts we think uh, has occurred in Scripture. Scholars believe it comes from around 1100 BC, which would not be too long after this battle. And because of its age, the Hebrew is pretty difficult to translate. There are unique words and old ways of saying things, much like modern English speakers trying to understand Shakespeare. And we can see the way that Hebrew poetry retells a story through this. Instead of having a a rhyming scheme, Hebrew poetry often will have two lines that say a similar thing just in parallel, uh, with the second possibly intensifying the first, for example, in, in verse 25, we read in the, in the New Revised Standard Version, uh, when Yael is providing Sisera a refreshment, it says, He asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a lordly bowl. In that second part of the verse, gave him milk is expanded to brought him curds in a lordly bowl. While not much new information is introduced, the stylistic flourish is a great example of what to expect in Hebrew poetry. When you begin looking for this repeating, intensifying uh, set of phrases, you're able to see them all over through prophecy and through poetry, through song. And when we think back to how God has worked in our own lives, my hope is that you would see God's work intensified and repeated in your mind's eye, much in the same way that Hebrew poetry sees it. That's all for Joshua 24 and Judges 1 through 5. Next week, we're going to read Judges 6 through 11, where we experience the strange story of Gideon and his sons, along with the tragic story of Jephthah and an oath gone wrong. Through it all, we're going to see that God is faithful even when the people are not. And this is still true today. May God bless you in your reading of Scripture.